If you all could open your Bibles to 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1. We're going to keep on going through the end of the chapter and into chapter 2, uh, continuing on what Trevor presented so well to us last week. So uh, keep your hands in your Bibles, keep your fingers there in the text because we're going to be referring back to it a lot. So just follow with me as we go. And right now I'm going to read the full portion that we're going to be going through this morning. So again, that's 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 13, going all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Starting in chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy in bringing us new life. Father, what a gift. Father, thank you for sending your Son, and Son, thank you for the Holy Spirit who sealed us for the day of redemption. Father, thank you for the gathering church and for all those who testify to Jesus Christ and the finished work of Christ and the Lordship of Christ. Father, I pray for your people today, for myself, that 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 I speak your words, Lord God. Father, guard us from the evil one, guard our ears and our minds and our hearts from the evil one. Let us receive your word with eagerness and with joy. Let us hear with ears of faith, and let us long, Lord God, for your kingdom together, God, as a body. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Uh, So, E.T., right? I think a lot of us have probably seen it. It's a horrible movie. It's awful. Uh, yeah, Matthew's like, what? And, uh, no, it's awful. It's, 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 and it scared me. That's why, honestly. It's, it's a weird thing. I, I was scared senseless when I watched it. I watched it, and, and he's creepy. You look at the guy, and he's this, this little, you know, brown, he doesn't speak English very well, and he, like, he, he yells, and he shrieks, and I was scared. I had nightmares about E.T. for years. It was horrible. Um, it's the second scariest movie I've ever seen. 
You can probably guess what the first one is, uh, those of you who know me. Um, But he had some distinct marks about him that made it so that he really didn't fit in, right? And they called him uh, accurately the extraterrestrial, right? The other worlder or the other worldly thing. Now, the things that set him apart were pretty obvious. He had a neck that glowed. He had a head neck that extended. And he was about, you know, whatever, three foot two and... And he shrieked like a ghoul. Uh, All these things indicated that he wasn't an earthly creature. He wasn't of this world. But that term, extraterrestrial or otherworldly person, otherworldly thing, to some degree it bears to what we've been talking about, right? Resident aliens. That's been the, the, the title of the series that we've been going through. And I think the term alien or even the term exile, like what Trevor was talking about last week, the term that's used here in 1 Peter, it denotes there's something that sticks out about these people. There's something distinct about these people. There's something about them that makes them inherently different, so much so that you call them an alien. You say they just don't fit in. They're otherworldly in some sense. So the question becomes, what is it that makes us otherworldly? Right? We're resident aliens, so we're here, and we look like everyone else, pretty much. So what is it, then, that sets us apart? What is it that puts the alien note in resident aliens? And so uh, last week, Trevor took us through what the Apostle Peter had to say about the identity of the exile. Right? So the, the identity, as Trevor explained so well, it's founded on the hope that was revealed to us in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel. But when we come to our text today, we see this pattern that uh, develops that um, teachers of the Bible have historically called the indicative imperative. And all that means is that often when we read the letters of the, to the early church in Romans or Ephesians or 1 Peter, you read these, this, basically the storyline of what God has done in the first chunk of the letter. And then in the latter part of the letter, we read the implications, what we're supposed to do in light of what God has done, right? So we see that in Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 is this great storyline, the great narrative arc of what God did in Jesus Christ from creation all the way to the resurrection. And then chapters 12 through 16 is this big exposition of, okay, now in light of that, this is how you ought to live. Therefore, because of what God has done, this is what life ought to look like for you. We see it also in Galatians chapters 1 through 4. Same thing, the story, the indicative. And then in chapters 5 and 6, the imperatives, the commands, the things that we ought to do, the things that we ought to walk in. And in Ephesians, same thing, chapters 1 through 3, the indicative, and chapters 5, uh, 4 through 6, the imperative. And first Peter's got a wonderful example of this in this, the initial chapter. He sets up the stage for suffering Christians, not first by telling them how they ought to live in the midst of the persecutions and the internal struggles. Now think about that for a second. Of any group of people, the people that are undergoing suffering, that are watching their brothers and sisters be burned on crosses, I think there would be a sense of urgency for this leader of the church to write to them and say, this is how you ought to behave. This is how you ought to be in this world. Hey, guys, practically, this is what it looks like on the ground. But he doesn't start there, right? He dedicates this whole huge chunk at the beginning to reveling in the reality of what God has done in and for them, laying the foundation for what's to follow. And this is vital for us to understand that from the biblical perspective, our actions flow from who we are and what we are as a result of what God has done in Christ. Always, every time, flows from the gospel. Identity flows from the gospel. 
But there are imperatives nonetheless. There's standards. There's, there's expectations that the people of God are going to look different. And that requires works. That requires deeds. It requires being in the world in a way that distinguishes us. And some of you are going to ask, you know, well, hold on, hold up, hold up. If it's all God's work anyway, if it's all of grace, how do our works and our deeds come into play? Now, that seems a bit, you know, worksy to me, a little bit uh, legalistic. But I think the answer to that is simple, and I think it's just the, the consequences of it are very expansive. That as followers of Christ, we have not just been forgiven of our sins, past, present, future, as marvelous as that is. We've actually been made new, changed, transformed. We, we are not currently what we once were. If you are in Christ, you are a new creature. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. You're brought into the new life of the living God. You were blessed that you might be a blessing. You're filled that you might pour out your life for the sake of the one who called you to this new life. So in Christ, though we're exiles in the world that's opposed to him, we're made co-laborers, participants in what God is doing in the world, putting God's wisdom on display for the whole world to watch. Um, commentator Paul Ackmeyer put it like this. He said, the very fact that grace brings with it obligations is itself an expression of grace. It indicates that God wants Christians involved in the new kind of world he's bringing into being. They're not merely bystanders, passive and acted upon. They're to be active participants, partners in the gracious covenant that God has established through his son. So now we turn to our text today, and I think Peter gives us four marks, if you will, characteristics of what distinguishes the life of an exile. And they're practices. They're things that flow from the heart, but they result in actions. They result in deeds. And I think the first one is sober hope. The second one is holy and reverent conduct. The third is love for one another. And the fourth is longing for the living God. And we're just going to hit each one in turn. Uh, so first one, sober hope. In verse 13, we read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's one command there. The command is to set your hope. And it's just one word in the Greek. Set your hope on the grace that is going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that phrase there, uh, prepare your minds for action, it, could be, it literally is rendered uh, having girded up the loins of your mind. So it's a weird phrase. It, it sounds kind of strange to us initially. But all it is is you, you picture a guy in a big long robe or, or some sort of garment with the, that goes all the way down to the ground. He rolls it up and he tucks it into his belt because he's preparing himself for action. He's preparing himself for movement. It's, it'd be similar like for us, we're, we're, we're ready to get our hands dirty, we're wearing a long sleeve shirt, you roll up your sleeves and you're getting ready for work. Or if you're a Portland hipster and you got jeans on, you roll up the cuff of your pant before you get on your bike. You're getting ready for action. Um, I don't know how many Portland hipsters, we, we don't have a lot. So, um, But for the couple of you, you're welcome. That's what it's like. Uh, <laughs> And being sober-minded tells us, though, so that's, that's that, that state of preparedness beforehand, right? This readiness beforehand. 
the being sober-minded is this continuous state of being. So in other words, in order for us to set our hope in the right direction, go in the right way, aimed in the right way that it needs to be, our minds need to be clear-headed. We can't be intoxicated. And, and I think the visual is really powerful here. Our, everybody sets their hope on something. We all have our hope and our minds set on one thing, be it popularity, some girl, some guy, some job, some house, whatever it is. A sober mind fixes its hope on the right thing, and the right thing, according to this text, is the, revela- the grace that is going to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But it requires sobriety of mind. It requires a sense that the, the wiles and the, the other things in the world that are vying for our hope, that are vying for our attention, don't get a hold. But we need to have a sober mind in order to do that. We need to be ready for it. So that's sober hope. The second one is holy reverent conduct. I'm going to be in uh, verse 14 and on. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the emphasis here is on the distinction between passivity and action, right? Uh, Obedience and becoming requires discipline. It requires action, deliberation. Whereas we're to avoid passively being shaped by the ways of the world, which we once embraced, that we inherited from our fathers and their fathers and their fathers on and on. So quite contrary to the ease of conformity, the Christian exile is to be one who embraces attitudes and actions that set them apart from those around them, become holy. And it's to do so with a sense of reverence, with a sense of wonder, with a sense of fear, right? Conduct yourselves with fear. Now, holiness and fear, I think we need to address this quick because those words have fallen upon hard times uh, in my generation in particular. They've basically become bywords to our generation, right? Holiness and fear, because they're tied to almost, when they're spoken, when the words are spoken, it's almost exclusively, uh, that's, that's that negative old sort of draconian way of thinking where we thought of gods that would crush us and we thought of all these sorts of things that are, that are fearful and, and majestic and we know better than that now. And in some sense, when you think about it, we've turned it around in our generation. The reverence isn't for things that are exterior to us. The reverence is actually turned inward. Right, we're told things like, don't let, anyone, don't let anyone stifle your dreams. Don't let anyone get in there and tell you something you don't want to know and that you don't want to hear. Don't let anyone press into you and tell you not to do something that you can't do something. Not to mention the fact that of any generation, I think this one is probably more capable of domesticating God than any before. Right? We, we, the, the, the notion that I should revere, that I should fear something, that's bad enough. But then that I'm supposed to also love and trust that person? 
that I'm supposed to love and revere is just completely lost on our generation. We have no concept of what that means. The movies are replete with things. You either get the fearful dictator guy who ought to be feared and he needs to be thus disobeyed and crushed, or you get the, the loosey-goosey guy who's just kind of a nice fella. That, that's, that's the modern way of thinking. We don't like fear. We don't like the word fear. We don't like the, word, the thought of holiness. We don't like reverence. The sense that we, and we don't like the idea that the one who we're to revere is also to be obeyed even when we don't understand why we're to obey, when he tells us to do things that we don't get, when he tells us certain things are wrong and we don't understand why they're wrong. But let's think about this for just a second. This isn't the case with the biblical, biblical authors for one thing. All right, so think about the psalmist. Okay, Psalm 130, verses three and four. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, grace, oh, that you may be feared. Oh, okay, that, that took me for a whirl. Hold on a second. Psalm 112, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So I'm blessed if I fear this God, if I have a sense of reverential awe for this God, and... I delight in when he tells me to do things, even when I don't understand them. Blessed is that man. All right? Or Solomon, consider this even stronger. In Proverbs 28, 14, he says, Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Did you hear what Solomon just did there? He just juxtaposed the one who fears God and the one who has a hard heart. If your heart is hard, one of the primary signs of it is going to be a lack of reverence for this good God, for this loving God, for this merciful God, for this God who deserves your reverence, your worship, your awe, your wonder. That's stunning. It's a stunning thing to think about. And it should frighten us to some degree. And it should. It should stroke reverence in our heart to think, oh, He's worthy of that. He's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my praise. Is my heart hard? Do I fear him? Do I not fear him? What's the root of my lack of wanting to fear this God or give reverence to this God? But then the question does come up, and I understand it. How does this work? What of God's compassion and what of God's mercy? What of his kindness? Right? We, we, we've seen this, we've seen this the, the fear of the Lord used in horrible ways. And then you look at other passages of Scripture and you understand that God's kindness and his gentleness, his kindness leads us to repentance. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Right? So we see this vision of God who's a compassionate God, who's a gracious God. How do we fear something that's compassionate? How do we fear someone that we are to love? How do we bring these two together? And Regarding this particular topic, I, I don't think I can say it any better than the commentator, uh, John Henry Jowett, so I'm just going to quote from him. Uh, hear this quote. Love without holiness is deoxygenated, and its ministry is that of an opiate or narcotic. Pity without holiness is a bloodless sentiment destitute of all healing efficiency. Forgiveness without holiness is the granting of a cheap and superficial excuse 
in which there's nothing of the saving strength of sacrifice. Begin with pity or forgiveness or forbearance or gentleness and you have dispositions without dynamics. Poor, limp things which afford no resource for the uplifting and salvation of the race. But begin with holiness and you put a dynamic into every disposition which makes it an engine of spiritual health. Forgiveness with holiness behind it is a medicated sentiment fraught with healing and bracing ministry. Gentleness with holiness behind it touches the aches and the sores of the world with a firm and delicate hand of a discerning and experienced nurse. Exalt the element of holiness and you enrich your entire conception of the fatherhood of God. I love that. Exalt the element of holiness and you enrich the entire conception of the fatherhood of God. Uh, Pastor John Piper once observed that no one goes to the Grand Hand Canyon to boost one's self-esteem. <laughs> you, don't, you don't go there because you're like, I feel really bad about myself. I want to I feel, feel that I'm pretty great and awesome. So I'm going to go to see this great canyon, this marvelous thing. No, you go there in a sense to worship right? You go there in a sense because it's awesome. It's literally awesome. It's full of, it makes you full of awe. It brings your heart to see something beautiful and wonderful and precious, something greater than yourself. As a matter of fact, it takes you outside of yourself. It takes your eyes from looking inward and it puts it out to something that is so much greater and it shows you just how small you are. But in the moment, you're not thinking about how small you are. You're thinking about how great this view is, how beautiful this site is, how big the mountains are, how wondrous the crags and the formations over years. It's incredible. And you lose sight of yourself. You lose sight of yourself. And you're more free in that moment than you probably will ever be. And that's what the worship of God looks like. That's what holiness looks like. This experience of fear, of awe, of wonder, uh, just, just, just sheer bewilderment. It's an element so vital to the life of the Christian that I think to neglect one's life of it is to unravel one's faith, even ever so slowly. You won't fall out of God's hand of kindness, but, I, but you, will, you will be fraught with doubt and frustration and angst. Holiness is key. Awe is key. A sense of reverential awe. Fear is key. Beloved, have you considered the reality that we as exiles stand out? <laughs> that we look different from those, of those around us? And I would argue, my friend, that this, this, th- that holiness, that reverence, and that awe, this divine parting of ways with the godless norms of any given culture that this will cause the watching world to question those godless norms and consider another way. Abdicating our responsibility to worship a holy God and maintain a sense of reverence, of sober joy in a context that we're in right now won't speak anything to the watching world. Sarcasm and the sort of joking and jaunting and and just just trite, flippant conversation doesn't show a world that needs hope that there is something to hope for. And we have it. We have it. I mentioned DT earlier, right? We think the, the extraterrestrial. 
I don't think, though, that that even does justice to, the, to, to what we're talking about here, right? Because we're still resident. We still look like everyone else, right? And Edmund Clowney, in his, in his com- uh, commentary, he calls us neo-terrestrials, not extraterrestrials. They neo-terrestrials, like new terrestrials. And all that means is that we're people of the new order. We're people of Christ's order. We're people of the new creation. That God actually came down, actually put on flesh, gave his life, ascended, sent his spirit in our midst right now, that we might be a people who live lives before God that demonstrate the kingdom that is to come. And it's in ways that are significant, that are lasting, and that are a prophetic voice to both sides of the spectrum, politically, socially, uh, economically, everything. The, the Christian way is this, is this way that is a, a prophetic voice of mercy, and it is a prophetic voice of proclaiming the need for reverence and fear and obedience to the living God. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it's what we're called to. We're people called to a new way of being in the world. It's a marvelous reality. So that's holiness and fear. We need to be reverent. We need fear. Third point, the third mark of a exile is love for one another. And uh, we see this in uh, verses 22 and on. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from the heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So this theme of newness of life, it finds expression in the command that follows, right? Love one another. And, and Peter brings out two things that kind of lie behind this command, right? So having purified our souls by obedience to the truth and having been born again. There are two acts that have occurred, right? They're, they're past events. They have happened, but they find themselves bearing fruit in the present. And one of them is active, right? Purifying your souls by obedience to the truth. And the other one is passive. We've received it, being born again to a living hope. But the remarkable thing about the passage, again, like I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, is that the active thing that was done, the active act, is dependent on the passive act. The new birth precedes obedience to the truth. What we do is dependent on who we are, and on who we are, at the very end of the day, relies fully on God's kindness in making us new, on his good intentions for our lives, on his mercy and his compassion toward his people. Consider 1 John uh, chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And when you look at the text, you ask, what's the means by which this love was made known? What's the means by which this new birth happens? And it's just remarkable. He says, it's the preaching of the good news. The preaching of the gospel. 
that in the preaching of the gospel, God birthed new life into everyone who has been born again. If you have been born again, you were born again by the living and abiding word of God proclaimed to you, be it at a church, at a camp, or wherever it might have been, God's word, alive and active, brought new life to you. God, to say, God's word, the word that we hear every Sunday, the, we have like, we have like 50 copies of the Bible in our house. <laughs> it feels so, it feels, it just feels like it becomes undermined after a while. But consider that the message of the word of God is what brought life to our very hearts. What made us new and what made us a people given to love one another. It's an incredible thing. It, and, and, and notice the, uh, the, what he says there, living and abiding, not like men or humanity and their glory and their structures and their cities and their establishments and everything else. Those things, they die. They wither like grass and like flowers. They fade and they, from dust they came and to dust they go. But the word of God remains forever. The word of the Lord remains forever. It's a beautiful thing. So love one another. And then the fourth mark, the final one we've talked about today, uh, longing for the living God. So chapter two, verse one, start in verse one. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So it's a, it's a strong connection there from our last point, right? So they're, they're, as a people born again to so this living hope, I, I, I think Peter anticipates the question, well, how do we grow, right? If, if you're a baby and you think, well, I came out, do we come out as full humans, as full-grown men and women? No, we come out and we're weak and we're frail and we desperately need help. So what do we do? What are the means of our growth? What are the means that bring us to maturity, to grow us up? Um, having cast aside the former life. Now, most of us who have children know what happens immediately after a child is born. Some of you are like, I don't remember a thing what happened after my kid was born. <laughs> I'm still recovering. Um, we're still recovering from our last, and we had him, he was born almost two years ago. Um, but for those of you who do remember, the newborn cries a lot, seeks comfort, just, just, just kind of, kind of curls around his look around. Their eyes are squinched, and it's just so uncomfortable. And then, almost without any hesitation, displays this readiness to nurse. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I've seen it seven times. You, you, you sit there, and you're, and you're, <laughs> you're there, and, and this, and this newborn is in front of you, and. I don't know what the priorities of a newborn kid are. I don't remember what it was like to be born. But, I mean, I could imagine how traumatizing it would be, right? You're born. I mean, the only thing you could picture it is like skydiving or something, where just you're, you're, not, you're used to safety and security and warmth, and mm, this is great. You've only breathed water your entire existence up to that point. And then you get your first touch of air, and you're like, <gasps> I'm breathing air now, and it's cold, and it's bright, and there's noise everywhere. Oh, my gosh. I would cry, too. All of us would cry. It would be a traumatic thing to go through. And so they display this readiness to nurse. They want comfort. They want solace. They want nourishment. And Peter says that our state is exactly like this. It's so similar. And that the means of experiencing the nurture and kindness of God is actually the same that brought us into being in the first place. The living and abiding word of God. 
Now, some of your translations, I, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, uh, but some of your translations read differently from the one that I just read, and it might say something like, um, long for the pure milk of the word. Now, that's because the word for spiritual, from what I just read, uh, pure spiritual milk, is logicon, which is a derivative of logos, which is the word that Peter just used in describing the living and abiding word of God. Right? He's making this connection here. The word that brought you to life, the word that actually made you new, brought you to be, is the word that's also going to nurture and sustain you. It's the word that's going to keep you growing. It's the word that's going to bring you into maturity. Simply stated, in the same way that an infant receives nurture, comfort, and growth from the mother's milk, we as believers are to approach the word of God with the same sense of anticipation and longing. Can you, can you imagine that? Just, just, just what that would look, I mean, I imagine it would look like on a Sunday morning, but we're all just, there, there's eagerness, there's anticipation. Because this thing that is our very lifeline for growth and maturity and nurture and comfort is about to be shared with us. It's about to be taught to us. It's about to be preached. It's about to be shared in community group. We're about to listen to it in the car. We're about to read it in the morning in our devotionals. Whatever it might be, there's a sense of anticipation, and there ought to be that sense of anticipation there for the believer. It's our lifeline in so many ways. On conclusion, on one final note, it's not in the text uh, explicitly, but there's one more aspect of being in exile that I think is essential, and I just think it's just assumed in the text, but I think we need to hear it today. And that's namely that when we think about what it means to be an exile, an alien, in this world, a sojourner, that we need to think about it in the plural. Exiles, right? So Peter addresses the exiles, right? Not the exile. And then when he speaks of the time of your exile, here in the passage that we read today, it's, it's, he speaks in the plural. He speaks to the, the, the entirety of the exilic community, of all the exiles. And then think about it. At the end of the day, the marks of an exile actually can't be done in isolation, right? The, the grace that we're to set our hopes on is the grace that is going to be revealed to the entire community. The grace that, the grace that would be revealed to you all, to all of you. And the holiness to which we're called is a holiness that finds its expression in the life of the community. Again, the command is all of you be holy. You all become holy. The love that is to be one of the hallmarks of the Christ follower is one that's directed to one another. Right? It's not just love in this generic sense, have this vague sense of love. It's love one another. You need objects to direct that love to, to give expression to that inner reality. And even the longing that's to characterize the life of the believer is one that in some way is to be encouraged and shared by the broader community. Right? The, the commandment is all of you long. You all long for this. Do this together. And I think the reasons for this are pretty simple. For one, Christ purchased a bride that wasn't just me. It wasn't just one of you. He purchased a body. He purchased a people. Matt's going to get into that next week when we talk about the, the, the priesthood, the people of God who were formed by God's work in Christ. But I think on the other hand, being in exile is really, really hard. <laughs> right? It's really, really, really challenging. Right? All of us here, we, even, even having read the first part of 1 Peter, most, a lot of us, even, even hearing this stuff today, hearing last week, hearing the other weeks before that, Doing your private Bible study. Jesus Christ has come. Jesus Christ has, has defeated sin and death and the devil. He's, he's dealt the decisive blow to all the enemies of God. 
We're born again to a living hope. At the end of the day, a lot of us showed up this morning. I suspect that most of us have realized that's not our daily experience. Right? We, we don't get up and I don't, I don't look in the mirror and I don't think, we made it, good. Um, I, unless it's like another day, like, we made it, we survived today. <laughs> like that's, but we, but I don't, none of us wake up thinking, okay, we've done it, we've got there, we've arrived finally. It's tremendously challenging. Not just the challenges from outside that are coming in, the, 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 the beratings and the characterizations and all the, the, just the nonsense that gets thrown out there at Christians, the accusations, accurate or inaccurate. It's hard to hear that kind of stuff. It's a challenge when you see the exaltation of things that God hates. It's painful. It's awful. You look at it and you just, it, it, just, it just makes your heart cry out. We still ache, right? We still get sick physically. We still have issues. Our hearts still hurt and grieve. We still have issues from the past, from today, and we're still going to have things that come that are going to resound in our minds that stick with us, pains, hurts, sorrows, loved ones that we lost. It's all there. It's all there. And we still wrong one another, sometimes viciously. That's one of the hardest things. Understand that we still get in each other's face and we still do absolutely nonsensical, stupid, and sometimes just outright cruel things to each other. We haven't made it yet, but we're sojourning together. And it's the only way that this can possibly be done. It's the only possible way to do it is doing it together. Beloved, uh, as, I was, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about the pastors of this church. Uh, we need your, the ministry of the body more than you guys probably know. All right. we, we, we need the gospel reminders more than you guys know. We need your prayers more than you guys. I don't know how many of you guys pray regular basis for the elders. For you, those of you who do, thank you so much. And for those of you who don't, please do. Just, just carve out time. Put on your calendar. Put on your phone. We need your prayers. We desperately need your prayers. We need, we, we need to, under, we, because, because we understand we're at war. We're at war with ourselves so often. And then there's infighting that happens even in the church and among the people of God, not to say of the other private relationships and other tensions that go on all around us. We need your prayers. We need you to share in this life with us, to walk with us. It's, there's some of you here, I don't know, and you're going to think Matt's talking directly to me. I might be. I'm not trying to. This is a generalization, but because I, I know there's some of you who struggle with this. You don't think you belong because you don't think you contribute anything to the body. You don't think you contribute anything to this thing that's called the church, this thing that's called the gathering church. And I just want to be really frank with you, the best ministry that you have is the ministry of presence, showing up. There's nothing that so delights the heart of an elder, that so delights my heart, or so delights, I think, any of our hearts, and just, just, just seeing people come, <laughs> just showing up. And just saying that, that encouraging word, it's a lifesaver. For, for those of you here who've, who've come and you've done, you've come up and given me an encouraging word or Matthew or Chris or, or Sev or anybody else, especially when times are hard, it's, it's a life raft for us. I feel like we're drowning half the time and it's a life raft for us. 
to have this, this, this word come out, this comfort, this, the, the, again, again, these marks of the church, these marks of what it means to be in exile expressed from the church to the leaders and from the leaders to the church and from the other members of the church to each other. This is what makes us tick <laughs> as leaders. This is what gets us stoked as leaders, right? We're seeing precious brothers and sisters realigning their hopes, right? Having the, being disciplined and realigning their hopes, casting off the old stuff, looking for the new way of life. Oh, watching as we, as we, as a people, uh, as we grow together in holiness, as we acknowledge our need to grow in holiness, we, we, we get to rejoice as we watch everyone grow into greater and greater, deeper and deeper levels of understanding of what God has accomplished for us in Christ. We're being encouraged, and, and I mean that literally. We receive courage uh, by your acts of self-giving love. It's, it's incredible. I, I, I can't tell you what your one little deed does. I remember when... Uh, I'll just say it, Nick. When Nick's community group and Dan Garfield's community group, they, they went and did a, a drive for this school uh, where they, they just got a bunch of like paper and pencils and stuff like that. It, and, they, and I think like a Starbucks gift card for the teachers. And Matt and I showed up and we met with the principal and we weren't aware that this happened. And the principal's like all humble and he comes up and he's like, thank you guys so much for the pencils. And I'm like, you got the wrong church, bro. I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, I'm sure that I actually have no idea what you're talking about. And he said, no, we received from the, the gathering church. And he, he showed us something. And later we come to find out completely of your own volition, this community group goes and does this massive act of love. That, that set me on fire for like three weeks. <laughs> I was so jazzed. All of us were just like, this is what it's like. This is the the people of God getting up, making a difference, getting in the community and displaying the self-giving love of God to those that need it so badly. It's marvelous. It's beautiful. And again, it's what makes us tick. And I think probably the best thing as we come together, as we take communion, as we, as we sing worship songs, as we sing prayers, and as we sit under the word of God, it's a joy to long together with you. It's a joy to long together. To, to confess together that we're desperate for Jesus. To, to confess together that we're desperate for the living God to come in and do something in our hearts, do something in our minds today. And for those of you who, and, and, and this you do know who you are, who struggle for you to come in and you keep coming in and you keep coming back and you don't just bail. It's a joy. It's a massive joy. And you keep going back to the gospel and you keep going back to this is what I need and you keep coming back to this is where I need to be and you keep coming back to these are the people God has placed in my life. It is a joy and a privilege to serve in that capacity. It's a massive joy and a privilege to serve in that way. So let's long together. Let's, let's, let's see these things lived out together and let's pray that God would make these things more and more a mark of what we are as a church, as the gathering church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit and the, the power that is at work in each of us. Lord God, we, we don't take lightly that the living God has chosen to make his dwelling among man. And um, we know that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and we are part of that kingdom. Thank you that we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we come today as your people, pray for the sanctifying and cleansing and cleaning and edifying, growing work of your spirit to be at work in us, Lord God. We love and thank you. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen.
Um, we're going to take communion right now. Again, it's a, it's, it's a remembrance. This is act of celebrating what God has done for us in Christ. And it is a meal for believers. If you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you've been baptized and you're a member of a local church, this, this meal is for you. And if you're not near a visitor today and that describes you, that Jesus Christ, you, you, you believe the gospel, you confess the gospel, please come up and partake with us. And one of the pastors will come up and lead us in communion.